See, I get time to talk up here too, and I talk too long, so here I am caught and you're waiting. Sorry. So Lori and I got a nice weekend away last weekend. We got away for our anniversary. That was fun and got to enjoy some sunshine up north. Had a good time. Glad Gary filled in and looking forward to getting back into this text this morning. We're going to really wear out the PowerPoint projector this morning because there's uh, so much going on here in this text. There's three really big rocks that we have to deal with this morning. Um, First one is Jesus talks a lot about heaven in this passage and so we're going to explore that. What does he have to say? What does he want us to know? Second one is, he says that uh, the works that he's done, we're going to do greater works. That's a big rock, okay? And then the third one is, he says, whenever we pray in his name, whatever we ask him, he's going to do. Well, there's another big rock. So we got three really big rocks to take on this morning. So let's jump into the text. But before we do that, I'd like you to pray with me and we'll ask God to have his Holy Spirit be our teacher. Would you do that with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you recognizing that your Spirit is given to us as a comforter, but also as a teacher. That's what your Word said, that He's our guide. So we ask, Father, that the teaching that takes place this morning would be through you speaking directly to our hearts because of the power and the effectiveness of your Word. Your Word, you declared, is is sharper than a two-edged sword. It has the, the ability to do something a surgeon can't do. It can divide, actually, our thoughts and can divide our soul and help us to reach right into the very deepest part of us. God, we ask that you would do that this morning, that you would focus us and make us fully present in the things that you want us to understand. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Um, We're back in John this morning, John chapter 14, and um, this is week 39. If you're new to New Hope, this is an opportunity for you to Um, get caught up on where we've been. This uh, particular setting this morning, Judas has left the room. It's the night of the Last Supper, just hours before Jesus' death. And Judas has gone out because Jesus has sent him out. And so Jesus has left with just the 11 who are very faithful to him that are in the room. And it's a very private setting. It's very intimate. And Jesus speaks to them about things that are private at this time. Eventually, John writes it down, and and some of the other disciples write it down years later. But we're getting to see what took place in that upper room. Understand, the last few days have been an emotional roller coaster. The disciples, four days previous, for us it's been weeks since Easter and Palm Sunday. That's when we looked at Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem. But for them, it's only been four days since they've seen the crowds shouting Jesus' praise. Yoshana! Yoshana! Save us now. So the crowd is seeing him as a king. And that's the way that the disciples see him, as the conquering king. But now Jesus is saying, I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be taken away from you. They passionately believe that he's going to free Israel from Rome. They're thinking on an earthly standard. And on a more personal note, they've given up everything to follow him. Their careers, jobs, everything's been set aside to be with Him. So the cross is imminent, literally hours away, and yet Jesus doesn't choose to focus on His own ordeal. It's one of the remarkable things about this passage. If you are going to be tortured within 24 hours and executed, that's going to be what's on your mind. It's going to be what's on my mind. But for Jesus, that isn't the case. What's on his mind 
is his disciples, his followers, whose world is about to be shattered. Everything they think they know about God is about to come unglued because they put God in this little box and they believe this is the way God's going to show up. He's going to do this and He's going to deliver. But that isn't the way that God shows up and they're in for a surprise. Now there's some other things that add to the emotional turmoil taking place. They've just been shamed Their pride has been put in place because Jesus went around the entire room and washed everyone's feet. He said, this is an example to you of how you should treat others. So they've got their issue of shame to deal with, and they're shocked to hear that one of their own is betraying Jesus, and they don't even know who it is. And now they're stunned at this statement that we've been left with that Jesus said Peter's going to deny him. So these emotional things are unsettling to them, let alone the fact that we're told that Jesus himself is troubled in his spirit. So you imagine the tension that's in this room. Now, in the remaining hours of his life on earth, Jesus begins to sketch a picture of what your future looks like. That's what he wants them to know. What's waiting for you on the other side? So we're going to be like the disciples this morning, You've got someone on their deathbed. You listen very closely to their last words. I don't know if you've been in a hospital room when someone is very near death, but we tend to lean in very closely to hear those final words. What did that person say? Jesus is on his deathbed, and they're leaning in to hear every syllable, every possible nuance of the word. What is his direction? What does he mean by this? Go with me to John chapter 14 and verse 1. And we'll hear what Jesus has to say. John 14, verse 1, you'll see it on the screen, and hopefully you can follow along in your Bibles. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, I've discovered that with the advent of cell phones in our lives, especially in the last 10 years, since many of us use the texting feature, if you text very often, you'll know what I mean by this, that when we text each other using our phones, it lacks emotion. So we've come up with clever little ways to show emotion. We try and put fake little smiley faces on the end of our messages, right? We send a text to someone or you put exclamation, exclamation. You want somebody to feel the emotion of what's going on behind the text that you're sending out. Same thing happens with emails. We find ourselves doing it with Facebook. We try to help people understand what's the emotion going on behind this. Well, when we look at a verse like this, verse 1, we say, well, there's no sense of emotion. What's the emotion? Well, the emotion is what's going on in the room, what we just talked about, this tension. And Jesus comes at this tension because he understands there's some uncertainty in the room, and they're weakened by the uncertainty. So he wants to strengthen them. The disciples are in distress mode, and so this is his message to them. This is a good translation for what he says. Put your heart at ease. Relax. Let your mind settle. That's what he's telling them to do. This is very consistent with the nature and character of God when you're in times of turmoil to tell you, don't be afraid. Look with me at the ancient book of Genesis. Genesis 15.1 Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. All the way forward into the New Testament, Jesus saying, Matthew 10, But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. 
That's consistent with the nature and character of your God. Relax. Let your mind be at ease. Which implies that we have the ability to relax and let our minds be at ease. Why should we be able to do that? He says in the follow-up, you believe in God, believe also in me. I'm going to explain this word believe in just a few minutes, but one of the advantages of the Greek language is that it does have emotion built into it. There are imperatives, and it helps you to understand by the way they place the punctuations what the imperative is. And so this statement, you believe in God, is a statement of fact. Jesus is saying, you believe in the God of the Old Testament. You believe and think you understand the God of Moses and Abraham and Isaac. You believe in Him, believe in Me. And the word believe, I'll explain that in just a minute, is the word pistuo, and it means to put your trust in. So here's the way we would say this. Expect the utmost from God. The God who can wipe out Egypt and deliver Israel from the hand of Pharaoh. The God who can spread the Red Sea open. You put your trust in Him. Put your trust also in me and expect it through me. So what this tells me is He recognizes they're already troubled. It's not that they're becoming troubled. They're already there. So He's saying, stop! Relax. You believe in God, believe also in me. How troubled were they? We've seen this word before. It's a Greek word, terasso. The word terasso is the word troubled. And it's, it's agitate. You have an agitator in your washing machine. We looked at this a couple weeks ago. It agitates the water. It cycles the clothes around inside the washing machine. So this is the word to be agitated, severely disturbed in your mental state of mind or in your spiritual state of mind. So what this says, church, is this: Jesus knows the disciples' hearts. He knows your heart. He knows when you're troubled, when you're torasso, when there's some spiritual agitation going on. And he understands your confusion and your concerns. So for the disciples, soon they're going to face trauma on a scale they never imagined in their life. Not only is Jesus about to be betrayed, but he's going to be tortured in a Roman fashion. He's going to be executed in a Roman fashion, which is brutal. And he's going to die. And so they're going to see him buried in the grave, their leader, the one they thought was going to free Israel. Trauma on a scale they never imagined. So I understand that the disciples are under massive emotional pressure. You ever find yourself in times where you think you're going through emotional trauma? Remember this section right here. Because God says... I can give you a way to calm your hearts in times of incredible turmoil. You trust in God, trust also in me, Jesus says. What does that mean? The word trust is the word pistuo in the Greek language. I don't have it on the screen for you. I think it might be in your notes this morning. But the word pistuo means to put your faith in someone, your confidence in them. And it doesn't mean that you believed in the past. The word pistuo is unique in the Greek language in that it means a present tense action. Something that you did in the past that is active in the present that has a continuing effect in the future. So Jesus is saying to them, you believed in the God of the past. Pistuo in me, the God of the present and in the future. It has a continuing effect in your life. And here's a promise 
Jesus does not need to be present physically for you to have that kind of confidence. As a matter of fact, he's saying this to the disciples knowing that he's about to be removed from them. He said in Scripture that you, in particular, myself included, are blessed because we believe in him and have not yet seen him. Look with me on the screen. I'll remind you that John 20, 29. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. That's you, church. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, Jesus himself is saying, you're blessed. You you can believe without even seeing. And even though he's no longer visibly present, the promise remains. What's the promise? Hebrews 13, 5. I will never desert you. I'm never going to leave you behind. I've got your back. So if Jesus speaks the words of God and he performs the acts of God, should he not be trusted like God, the God who cannot lie? Jesus is saying, relax, put your mind at ease. Why? Well, he begins to unpack in verse 2 the reason why you should not let your heart be troubled. Go with me to verse 2. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. So for Jesus, heaven is a very real place, not a product of imagination, an actual physical place. I put this in your notes this morning. You're going to see this on the screen as well. There's a very unique meaning to the Father's house because it's associated with other definitions in Scripture. Father's house is just another word for heaven. Well, what does that mean? In, in Scripture, this is what it says. You can look up the references later today, but specifically, it's called a country. Why? Because it's vast. We're also told it's called a city. And when we think of a city, we think of a large number of inhabitants. It's also called a kingdom. Why? Well, it's got a king. We don't live in a world with a king. We live in a democracy. It's a new place for us to experience what it means to have a king ruling over a kingdom. And it's also called in Scripture a paradise, a paradiso. Why? Because it's indescribably beautiful. We're going to get into that in just a minute. And it's also called a place of rest. You've struggled with things in your life, physical ailments, Perhaps the the constant awareness that you live in a fallen world and sin is just rampant around you. Constantly aware that Satan seems to be winning the battle. That's all leaving when you're in heaven. That's why it's called a place of rest. It's where the redeemed are free. Free from not only the physical problems, but free from this battle that takes place with Satan all the time. So Jesus uses two very specific words when he talks about heaven. He uses the word monet when he says dwelling place. The Greek word, very specifically, this is what it says. It's a residence, a place. And and, and implicit within that meaning is the word mansion, okay? We're going to talk about that in just a minute because that somehow crept its way into modern theological definition. So I want to help you to understand that, an abiding place. But that's the word dwelling place, monet. Then he uses the word topos, And that's when he's talking about, in verse 2, a place. And it it means your quarters. Military individuals are familiar with that. You have quarters that you're assigned to, your spot. So Jesus is saying, in my Father's house, there are many mansions, or we'll help reframe that working, that thought in just a minute. There's many quarters for you to dwell. So some songs have crept their way into our modern theology, maybe some songs historically that go back 150 years, 
into the hymnals of the churches. And, you know, I've got the mansion just over the hilltop. If you grew up in church, you're familiar with some of those songs. Well, that's the word Monet working its way into modern theology. Understand, God does everything big. You only have to look at some of the Hubble Space Telescope's photos to understand when you look at the nebula clusters out in the universe. God is massive beyond our comprehension. So it's, it's logical to think, well, when he's preparing a place for me, it's going to be massive beyond anything that we can understand. Well, that's really a kind of a misunderstanding because we don't know what these places look like apart from Scripture. What we do know is that Jesus is personally preparing a place for you. That means, according to the Bible, the one who designed everything from the ladybug to the brontosaurus, to the planet Mars, is personally preparing a place for you. Now, so far, it's taken 2,000 years to work on. Now, we think an Earth project is significant when it takes three to four years. The, the new World Trade Center being built in New York City has been like a 10-year project. Well, six years, it was tied up in court, and the last four years have been construction. So we look at that and think, well, that's a magnificent structure It's taken all these years to put together. Well, according to Scripture, in earth terms, Jesus has been working on this for thousands of years to get it ready, a place for you. I'm not sure we fully understand that, but here's what we do know, dwelling place. What does that mean? Let's go to the book of Revelation. This will be on the screen. If you don't mind flipping over into your Bible, you can follow along there as well. Revelation chapter 21. I'm going to encourage you later today to read the entire chapter of Revelation 21 when you get a chance because that's the chapter that describes heaven, a physical description. But let's just take this section right here. Revelation 21.16. The city is laid out as a square and its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with the rod, meaning there was an angel that was with John. He measured the city with the rod, 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. So in modern measurements, if you take this and break it down, the base of the city, we're talking one city, the city of God, the new Jerusalem it's called, ascending, descending down to earth, this city is over 2 million square miles just at its base, according to the measurements that are given here. More than half the geographic size of the United States of America. Uh, Let me put this in context for you. If you were here during the teaching of the book of Revelation, this will be familiar to you. We're talking about a region from Toronto, Canada, to the Gulf of Mexico, around the Florida Keys, from Florida over to the border of Arizona and New Mexico, from that border all the way up to Billings, Montana, from Billings, Montana back to Toronto. We're talking about a square according to what Scripture says here, 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles. Anybody here ever seen a city on earth that big? I haven't. I'm not raising my hand because I have. I'm just asking the question. It doesn't exist. So it's something that's being created for us. So when we think of dwelling places, the way the Middle Eastern mind would be thinking of this, when John wrote this and when Jesus spoke this to his crowd, let's think in the Middle Eastern mindset of what dwelling places means. A dwelling place could help you to familiarize yourself when you think of New York City 
or Chicago or Las Vegas when you think of a penthouse. A house within a house. A very large structure with a house inside a house. That that's in keeping with a Middle Eastern mindset. The height of this adds exponentially to the size because what's being described here is a cube. It says that its width and its length and its height are equal. So we're describing a cube, something that's as high, 1,500 miles high, as it is wide. So when we think of a dwelling place, we're thinking of God's house within this structure, and it's a place that Jesus is preparing of dazzling beauty, unimaginably spectacular, inexpressible, to the degree that Paul actually wrote, things that the eyes have never seen, the ears have never heard, the mind has never comprehended, the things that God has in store for those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. That's what Scripture tells us. But understand the emphasis here is on heaven's intimacy. The focus is not on the lavishness of heaven, but rather that we're going to be close because Jesus says, in my Father's house. What's the imagery here? When a young man grew up in the first century and got to the age of marriage and he would find a spouse, he and his spouse typically if his father was still alive, would build a home attached to his father's home, a dwelling place attached to his father's house. Families were very, in a very intimate setting, especially if they practiced the same action of income, if a if son apprenticed under his father. If they were carpenters, they would be carpenters together. Their homes were together. The Middle Eastern mindset was that the rooms were together. So we're talking about intimacy here that Jesus is helping us to understand. And I love this emphasis in the end of verse 2. If it were not so, I would have told you. I don't lie. He's the God who does not lie. And if it were not so, I would have told you. So Jesus, who knows all things, in spite of the most hostile circumstances you can imagine, he's going to be tortured within hours. In spite of that, his focus is on the greatest resolve and the calmest assurance of what's waiting for you. Why? Because he's been there. He knows what's waiting for you. He knows what's in store. So Jesus never speculates about your future. It's not like, I think this is the way it's going to be. It's said with resolve. He knows, he speaks as one as familiar with eternity as you speak about your own hometown. You know where Target is. You know where the mall is. You know where Culver's is. Some of you go to Culver's more often than others here. You understand the way. Jesus speaks as it is being very familiar to him because he knows it like the back of his hand. It's his hometown. And so he tells us in verse 3, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also and you know the way where I'm going. So if I go to prepare a place, that means he presupposes it exists and I'm going to prepare it for you. If he takes such trouble to prepare a place, it is inconceivable, church, that he would not follow through and come back. That's a promise. He's promising you, I will come back. It's right there. I will come again. 
So that's a clear promise of his return. His return is as certain as his departure. Yeah, I heard one amen. I should hear a room full of them. Okay, his, his return is as secure as his departure was, and we know that he departed. It's a promise, but we understand that some here, whether you were at the Saturday night service or the 9 o'clock service or here in the 11 o'clock service, some here will enter heaven through death. It's appointed unto man once to die. No one's figured out how to erase their name out of that little death appointment book. Everybody's going to die at some point, or... Jesus is going to return first, and you'll meet him in the clouds. It's only one of two ways. That's what Scripture says. That's the way it's going to happen. So I don't know if you've read this recently, but I'm going to take you to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 just to remind you again that the Bible tells us there's two ways that you enter heaven physically. Only two ways, and here's what they are. 1 Thessalonians 4.15 For this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words." So we're to be reminded, you're either going to enter heaven through death or Jesus is going to return perhaps in our lifetime and we'll be raptured away. That's what that's speaking of specifically. But he tags on at the end, I'm assuming you know the way, so follow the GPS coordinates right to the very end. You know the way where I'm going. And Thomas, classic Thomas, has this reaction of, what? We don't know. So he goes to verse 5. Thomas says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now understand that the disciples could not be with Jesus really shook them right to their core. By this time, their minds are so rattled they don't know what's sure. And so they're asking these questions. And Thomas is utterly honest, but he's incredibly pessimistic. And you study Thomas sometime when you look at the New Testament. He's totally uninhibited, but he sure doesn't mind speaking his mind. So he sums up what the confusion is for the rest of the group, and he says, we don't know where you're going. How are we going to know the way? Here's the truth, church. We don't need to see star charts pinpointing the way to the Father's house wherever it's at out there in the universe. Because Jesus says it's about relationship. Knowing Jesus is enough. That's why he follows it up by saying, I'm the way, Thomas. It's there through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So the Bible teaches very, very clearly, and this will offend people, that God is approached exclusively And that is a surprise to many people whom you live with and work with. That God is approached exclusively through one way, through His only Son. Now, the postmodern belief structure, especially prevalent here in the United States, says that seems offensively exclusive. 
There are many paths to God. And I'm here to tell you, it is a satanic lie. It is not the truth of the Bible. That's why Satan showed up in the garden and said to Eve, Eve, eat of this fruit, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, you will become as God. It's a lie from Satan. There are not many paths to God. There is one path, and Jesus declared it. That's why it says in Acts 4, 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Did you know that the early Christians understood this so emphatically that they actually were called the people of the way? That was their title. They weren't known as Christians. That came a long time later. The label was the way. When Paul went out to arrest Christians, he was arresting people of the way. Let me show you this on the screen, Acts 9-2. Speaking of Paul, if he found any belonging to the way, this is before he came to Christ, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Do you notice the word way is capitalized? That was their title. Well, what is this phrase that Jesus uses when he says, I am the way? It's the word hodos. In the Greek language, it means, I'm the journey. I am the highway by which you get to God. There is one path, and I'm it. This is the one route. So I'm the highway that leads to the Father. I'm the truth that teaches the knowledge of God the Father. And I'm the life that awakens everyone who seeks the Father. And I guarantee you this, and you need to be reminded of this, because we are assaulted on a daily basis from a media that seems intent on convincing people there are many paths to God. Let's be reminded of this, church. No man, by any other doctrine, by any other merit, there's no gold star system, there is no negotiating with God. One way, one truth, one life, the Lord Jesus Christ, that is it. Absolute truth. So he comes to verse 7 and he says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Think of the magnitude of that statement. You're looking at God. When you look at me, you're looking at God the Father. How did they know God the Father in the past? Prior to Jesus, they knew God the Father through what they had written in the Old Testament. That's the only way they knew him. Whatever had happened to Moses, they read about. Whatever happened to Abram, they read about. Whatever happened to Daniel, whatever they had in the Old Testament, they didn't have the New Testament. And so Jesus is saying to them, you think you know the Father because of what's written in the past. When you see me, you see the Father. So we understand this is a very personal statement for him. He did not merely claim to know the way. There's not some recipe He's saying, I am the way, and I am the solution to human separation from God. So these next three points I put in your notes, they're going to be up on the screen as well, so that you really get this verse down and understand that. This would be a great one to tuck away in the back of your Bible. Number one, he is the way to the Father because he only has an intimate knowledge of God. He alone, and it's unmarred by sin. He was never exposed to to the same issues that we face because he never sinned. Now, he lived life as a human man, but without sin. So he alone has an intimate knowledge of God, totally separated from sin. He's truth because he has the perfect power of making your life a comprehensible experience. 
There's a man who attends church here who is in his 80s, who came to Christ very recently, who was an atheist his entire life, a professor at MSU, and recently came to Christ because of working his way through the Bible, realizing that he was at this great age in his life and had been an atheist his entire life, yet had never read the Bible, so he sat down to read it. Well, God's word is alive and sharper and active than a two-edged sword, and it penetrated right to the soul. And he got to the book of Acts, and he fell on his knees and confessed Jesus Christ as his Savior because he recognized the truth of the word of God. And he said to me just a few weeks ago, life with Jesus makes sense. I can put the pieces together now. It's understandable. So I would say in point two, it's comprehensible with Jesus. That's why you find people who are apart from God constantly on a journey search saying, what is the meaning to life? Well, it's right here. We've got the solution if you would just take the time to work through it and understand it. So number three, he is the life because he was not subject to death. Rather, death was made subject to him. So understand, please, and this can sound like it's an arrogant statement on Jesus' part. Jesus is not exhibiting arrogance here. Rather, he's stating the only possible deduction from the fact that he is the sole access to God the Father. It's a statement of truth. So here's what we know is very clear up to this point. He's going to the Father, and he's the only way to the Father, and heaven is a real place, a place that is exclusive, and not everyone is going to heaven, only those who trust in Jesus. So that's why Jesus says, I stand alone. I am the way to God. I am the truth and the life. So Thomas's question is emphatically answered at that point. But Philip is not so sure. So this will really roll along now. Go with me to verse 8. We're going to take on three, four verses here, and it will move fairly quickly. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. So if Thomas is a skeptic, Philip is a realist, and he's asking for direct access to God. He's joining a long line of humans throughout history who are saying, okay, if you, I could just see the face of God, then I would believe. I'd be all in at that point. Because he understands that there's no higher experience than seeing God in all his unimaginable splendor. That's what he's asking for. We still yearn for that today. I talk to people on a regular basis who say, you know, I would just believe if I could just see Jesus like, straddle US-127 and hold a sign up and say, here I am. Well, that's not the way it works. But we long to see him that way. Do you know that Moses begged for the same thing? He got to the end of his life. He did everything that God had asked him to do. And he said, I've done everything you've asked me to do. Would you now show me yourself? I'd like to see you. God says, Moses, you, I can't do that. You would evaporate. You'd just be vapor. But I'll, I'll pass by you, and I'll put my hand over you so that when I pass by, you'll see my afterburners. 
I mean, essentially, that's what the Bible says. You'll just see the glow of me move on by. So Moses even asked for that exact same thing. I want to see you. So that's what you see Philip doing. Give us a visible image of God. Peel back the ceiling. Let us see what Moses saw. That would be enough. So that's why you see Jesus' response here is tinted with a little bit of sadness. Philip, I've been with you a long time. Now that's understandable for non, from a non-believer to have that response and say, I want to see the Father. But from someone who's walked with Jesus, why he would make that statement, here's the truth. And this is a watershed statement which Philip's makes. Understand, a watershed peeling one side or the other, it's a dividing point of understanding Jesus because the rest of the world struggles with the same issue. Islam says that Jesus was a prophet, a good man, but no more than that. Mormons would say he is a son of God. And be very careful when you're in conversations with Mormons because that can be confusing. They would say he's a son of God just like you are a son of God, just on a higher plane, not that he is the son of God. Jehovah's Witness would say he was a miracle worker, a good teacher. A Buddhist would say he was a peacemaker, a peacekeeper. That was his mission. Many people throughout history have regarded Jesus as a good person, a virtuous moral teacher. I will tell you that is impossible. It is impossible because of this reason. No one who claimed to be God incarnate, who claimed to be God in the flesh, if his claims were false, could be a good man. Okay? So an individual who says, I am God, and they just associate him as being a good teacher, he's not a good teacher. He's a deceiver or a raving lunatic. Or he's the son of God whose knees we need to fall at. That's the truth of Scripture. So individuals can't say he was just a good man. That doesn't work. So let's move forward because he says, otherwise, if you, if you can't believe all the things that I've said and done and that the Father's working through me, you've got to believe the works, Philip, at least, that I've done. Those, those works came from God. Who saw those works? The disciples saw those works. So at least believe based on the works. They're Christological signposts stamped in the ground. They point exactly to who I am. Go with me to verse 12. This is where it begins to wrap up. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. That is an astonishing promise. It is staggering. Anybody here feel like you've ever done works greater than Jesus? My hand's not up because I have, okay? I'll, I'll put my hand down here. I haven't had anybody in any of the three services say that they feel like they have. No one feels like they have. They, and such an expectation seems impossible. How could we do this in light of his character and power? Now, the greater works what Jesus referred to here are not greater in power. That's not what he's saying. Or the ones that he performed, but rather greater in extent. And let me explain that. The disciples did amazing works after Jesus was resurrected. One instance, Peter's walking through the temple courtyard. Just his shadow fell on someone who was ill, and that individual was healed instantly. There's amazing things that took place through their life that Scripture records, but that's not primarily what Jesus had in mind. 
since the disciples did not do more powerful miracles than Jesus. Jesus raised a man from the dead who had been dead four days in the grave. He restored eyesight to someone who had been born blind. That's not what we see recorded in Scripture for the disciples. They did do amazing things on behalf of God. But what's he talking about here? He's referring to the extent of the miracle of salvation that you get the privilege to spread around the world. Peter, in one sermon after the arrival of the Holy Spirit, saw 3,000 people come to Christ in one day. One day in seven minutes. If you've ever read that passage, that's all it takes. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the power that Jesus is speaking of. The greater things that you will do. And what happened as a result? The church exploded around the world to the degree that even the Caesars of Rome became followers of Jesus Christ. And today, we have the legacy that the movement of Jesus has spread around the entire globe. That's the greater things that are done. Jesus only preached within Israel. He only had hundreds of people. The disciples had thousands within one day. Greater things that have been done. So the infant church exploded over the entire Roman world. And you get the privilege today, every time you talk to someone about salvation in Jesus and who He is in your life, you're doing great things according to what Scripture says. And how do you do that? Because He goes to the Father. He said, that's your power source. That's where it's coming from. I go to the Father, and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you, and greater works you're going to do as a result of this. Verse 13, this is where we end today. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. The first thing I want you to note is the power of the disciples originated in prayer. That's not in your notes this morning. You might want to write that one down. I know it's kind of an obvious thing, but it's something we forget. The power of the disciples originated in prayer. I'm going to the Father. You ask things in my name, I'm going to do them. It originates in coming to me in prayer. So we are to expect Jesus to continue to act in our world. We are to expect him to do that because he said he would. But understand that praying in Jesus' name is not a magic amulet. You don't get to rub the belly of the genie bottle and say, genie, grant me three wishes. That's not what's going on here. But we understand what he's doing here is making a guarantee. Let's understand the guarantee. If I wrote you a check this morning, I pull a check out of my checkbook, and I write out your name, and I put an amount in there, spell everything out in detail and hand it to you, but I don't put my signature on it, that check is worth nothing. When I sign my name to it, that validates that check. You take it to the bank and they will cash it because that's a signed check. It's got value. Jesus is saying, I'm signing the check. I'm putting my name to these things. So you've got to ask in my name. Well, that means way more than simply tacking Jesus' name on at the end of a prayer. Because for the Old Testament believers and the New Testament believers, they understood that someone's name was attached to their character their nature, their very existence. We choose names randomly today to name our children. But in Bible times, they chose names because it represented who the person was. Jesus' name, Yahshua, Yahashua, the one who saves. So you've got to ask things in my name, meaning in keeping with my character and my nature. 
So the anything that we're invited to ask includes all the things that can be identified with the kind of person that Jesus is. That requires submitting your will to his. So this is where we're going to close today. And I put it in your notes this morning. You're going to see it on the screen. These last four points. Because this is how you should pray when you pray in Jesus' name. When your job has gone away, when your checkbook is empty, when you're facing illness that you never anticipated, when your marriage is in turmoil, you have to come before the Father in this way. Number one, make the request consistent with God's will and the purpose of His kingdom. That's why Jesus said, when I teach you to pray, this is what it's going to look like. Our Father who is in heaven, holy is Your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. He put that at the very top of the list. Then He said, give us our day, this day our daily bread. So those are the very first things we do. God, You're holy. And I want Your will done. I want Your kingdom to come. So make your request consistent with God's will. Number two, we're going to be acknowledging our own insufficiency. Father, I can't fix this. I'm coming before you because I'm asking you to fix what's going on. But I want your will. Number three, it's to approach God based on the merits of who Jesus is. Everything that he accomplished. Number four, you're expressing a sincere desire that God would be glorified in the answer. That's the way that we pray in Jesus' name. And when believers pray in this way, we're praying in keeping with Jesus' name, meaning His person, His purposes, His preeminence, His rule. So let me reel you back in here as we end with this thought. Of all the words that Jesus could have shared on His deathbed, this is what He wants us to know. That's why the disciples are leaning in to hear every single syllable. We want to understand what's going to happen here. The assurance of your heavenly home at the end of life's road and the obstacles is the reason that we sing the way we do, church. That very first song that we sang this morning when we came in here at 11 o'clock was a recognition that there's something greater waiting for us. That's why we applaud at the end saying, yes, we win. I read the end of the book. I know what Revelation says. You don't have to be caught up in earth's circumstances. So let me remind you of what Paul said at the very end of his life. Having faced all the same kind of trauma that we face, when he said this, it's not going to be on the screen, just listen, Romans 8.18 For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Whatever we're going through, I can't even begin to compare it to what's in store for you. I rarely ask Michael and the worship team to hang around to do a closing song, but I did that this morning. That's why I was talking when you were all greeting each other. Because I wanted us to do one song, the song we did at the beginning of the service, after we heard this teaching. Because you have a reason to rejoice. So I'm going to pray with you right now, and then the worship team is going to take us back through that very first song again. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you as individuals who recognize we have an incredible, 
inheritance in you. We've been given the promise of eternal life in heaven with the God of creation. And it's all because of what you did. Now, Father, I'm sure that as we take on this week, there's going to be obstacles in front of every one of us. There'll be things that we never anticipated coming into the midst of our life. Father, help us to remember what you said to the disciples in the midst of their trauma. Let not our hearts be troubled. We believe in you and that there's a dwelling place waiting for us, something that you've prepared that exceeds everything imaginable, a place of rest, a place of paradise. God, we rest in that promise knowing that you wanted us to know that in the times of turmoil. So Father, I ask that you would seal this deeply in our heart. Help us not to forget. It's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen.